All right. Well, we spent the last three times together um, looking at the wisdom literature, or in other words, the poetic books. And this week will be um, our last week in this genre of literature before we get back to the chronological sections. So we'll be in the first and second Kings next week. But we want to look at Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon today. And um, what these books have in common is that they both are poetic books and that they've both been written by Solomon. There is some debate about both of them as to whether they were written by Solomon. I think they were, but um, the point of the text doesn't really isn't affected by who wrote it ultimately, but it does help us to get have some context. So in these two books, we can easily get lost in in some of the smaller sections, and so we have to be. Um, we have to be cognizant of the larger picture of both of these books. So let's take a look at, at these, and uh, before we do, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you are um, the lifter of our head and that you are our glory, and uh, that all that we do is for you. And Lord, we, we fail you often, and we need to come to you for forgiveness, but you are faithful, and, and you are merciful, and and uh, we pray that you help us to see our lives in light of uh, your sovereignty and your uh, control and, and your plans. And we pray that, that that would be evident as we look into your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's look at chapter 1, verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1. Would someone read that for us? One line? Yes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, came in Jerusalem. All right, and then would you read verse 12 as well? I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. All right, so in verse 1, it says that the words of the preacher are from the son of David, and there's only one son of David who also was, verse 12, who also reigned over Israel in Jerusalem. That's why I take this to be Solomon. Um, the the writing, again, is is around the mid-10th century B.C., like the Proverbs. Um, it wasn't written in light of any one historical event, but rather it was written at the end of Solomon's life as he looks back on all the exploits of his life, all the things that he had done, uh, whether good or bad, as he looks back on them. Um, he reflects on them and then helps us to see things in light of God's perspective. So, if Solomon is the author, which I think he is, um, then we should note some of the accomplishments of Solomon's life, and that will actually help um, to give some some substance to what he's going to say about his pursuit of happiness. You know, he's pursuing happiness in all these various areas, and if anyone could pursue happiness, you know, sometimes we say, well, we can't pursue it, happiness to the full because we don't have money or because we don't have power or you know all these things that we're looking for. Solomon had all of that. And what he's going to say is that there's not happiness in any of those things ultimately uh, with one caveat, and, and we'll get to that. Okay, so consider the things that Solomon did. He united the kingdom. He expanded the kingdom's border, the borders to the sizes larger than it had ever been before. He had a huge administration of governors, judges, chiefs, officials, officers, captains, commanders, and armies. He built a fleet of ships. He presided over many judicial matters. 
He established peace and trade with numerous otherwise hostile neighboring countries. He fortified cities with walls and gates. He brought in economic prosperity to the point where um, uh, the scriptures say that, that silver was as common as stone in Jerusalem. He built the temple that his father only dreamed of. And then when he was done with that, he built up the rest of Jerusalem and other entire cities simply to house chariots and cavalry. And amazingly, he did all this without ever going into battle. And so this is one king's accomplishments for one lifetime, and it's even more than than Trump's done in his first hundred days. Amazingly, Solomon (laughs) has done more than Trump. And and the reason we need to know this about Solomon is because he's going to critique worldly prestige, power, success, materialism, and, and it's a more powerful critique if, if we think of it from, uh, in terms of a man who is on top of the world, right, in terms of a secular perspective. So like in the book of Job, Ecclesiastes first poses a problem and then it gives a solution. And the question at the beginning of the book is this, what is the meaning of life? Anybody ever wonder that? I mean, I think we all have. Do you think unbelievers ever wonder what the meaning of life is? Absolutely. There are shelves of books and all kinds of uh, documentaries written on this kind of thing. I mean, isn't life all fleeting and empty and pointless and vain since we're all just racing on towards death anyway? And it's a serious question, isn't it? If, If we're all just going to die, then does it really make any difference what we do between the time that we are born and the time that we die. What real impact can we have on this world? Who is going to remember us when we're gone? And why should we we really care who remembers us or what impact we have if we're just dead anyway? And, And this is a very relevant question for us since there are entire worldview systems built around the inability to answer such questions. Some say that there are no answers and life is, in fact, without meaning. It is meaningless. It is vain. Others say it's too depressing to think about, so we just have to create meaning in the things that we do. Unfortunately, they also recognize that death will always get the last laugh. So no matter what we do, we can't avoid death. Philosophers have described the human life as a match struck in the dark. Regardless of how it burns, it's going to burn out. It's going to go back to darkness. That's what our lives are like. And, and if that's the way that we see life, it's just, you know what? It doesn't matter what happens between now and death. We're all going to be like a match in the dark. It's a pretty fatalistic way to look at life. And, and, and so these types of questions that Solomon brings up are important for us because if we move on to that sort of fatalistic thinking that, you know what, whatever happens, happens, then we will have no purpose in life and and we won't won't work very hard at all. But I think it's imperative that we listen to what Solomon has to say because this question is staring us all in the face. And here's what Solomon says. see if I have this in here. Um, I don't. 
the point of Ecclesiastes is this. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful because all is ordered by a sovereign, eternal, purposeful God. Everything is ordered by a sovereign, eternal, and purposeful God. And therefore, we should fear God and rejoice in what He has given us to have. So, Ecclesiastes confronts man's attempts to find meaning in creation apart from God. So, it's, it's this idea of the so secular worldview that says, okay, let's set God aside and let's pursue meaning our own way. And that's what Ecclesiastes is here to help us to answer. Because if the universe were created and, and, and it was just left alone, if it was given over to chance or blind luck, then those types of claims about the match struck in the dark are right. Our life ha- does have no purpose. It, our life doesn't have purpose. Maybe a better way to say it. All right, there's no goal. There's no reason for it. If, if we're just moving from here to annihilation, then it doesn't really matter how we live. So, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. Live life to the fullest Find meaning in whatever you can because it doesn't matter. Nothing's going to come of it. But if it is governed by an all-purposeful, eternal, sovereign God, then, then it changes everything. Then life does have meaning and we ought to live it according to God's perspective. There's an outline on the back of your handout that, that I found helpful. This is not, um, this is not original to me. Um, but it is it is helpful as you're reading through Ecclesiastes on your own to just have some of these outlines just so you know where the author's going because this is not just a random collection of ideas. You know, sometimes you look at the Proverbs like, oh, it's just a bunch of random uh, Proverbs sayings, and so maybe Ecclesiastes is similar. It's a wisdom book, so it's maybe just a bunch of random things going on, but no, it's not. It's actually an ordered, logical argument from beginning to end. So we need to see what that argument is. So let's see if we can do that and then we'll look at the video and then move on to Song of Solomon. So, in the opening two chapters, Solomon explores what the meaning of life might be. So, he looks at the bare facts of life and draws this conclusion in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does a man have in all his work which he does under the sun? Solomon, how could you say that? Well, look at verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. One thing is common in every generation is that they come and go. It's fleeting. The generations come and then they die. They pass away. There's no lasting permanence to anyone. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also the later things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. And think about all the people that we remember from history. And think about the countless billions of people who have died without being remembered at all. So there are very few who actually are remembered, even them. How much time do we really put into thinking about them? And so the world is full of furious living and dying. Everything and everyone eventually dies. And according to verse 11, they're soon forgotten. So what difference does it make if there's nothing to show for anything in the end? In the rest of chapter 1 and 2, Solomon gives us a tour of his pursuit of relevance and meaning. 
uh, his pursuit of meaning and, and his pursuit of lasting value. And he tries to find significance in wisdom, in wine, in laughter, riches, delicacies, his works, his projects, sex, power, fame, and even full material gluttony. If he wanted it, he got it. Look at chapter 2, verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor. And this was my reward for all my labor. So he didn't deny himself anything. He tried every possible route to discover what could be of real profit for man in the short days that he lived. And he found nothing. Look at verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. Striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So once he denied himself nothing of anything that he desired, he said it was like trying to catch the wind. Right? Can we catch the wind in our hand and hold it? No, it's fleeting. It's passing away. And so where are the answers? Where does meaning and worth and significance come from? Where is the meaning of life? Well, no matter where Solomon looked, he kept coming back to the same conclusion. Look at verse 15. Then I said to myself, as is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. So, you know, one of the greatest men who ever lived, it's going to befall me as well. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, this too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as of the fool. Inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten. And how the wise man and the fool alike die. Here's one of the other common things between those who are great and those who are small, that they all die. Look at verse 17. This kind of bleak look at life causes Solomon to hate life. He says, I hated life for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after the wind. Are you kidding me, Solomon? With all that you had, all the pursuits, all the things that everybody else wants, you had it. And you hated life? Look at verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And then verse 20. Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. And then verse 23. Because all the days... All of his days, his task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. This, too, is vanity. And to this point, I mean, we might be saying, well, Solomon, we know the answer, but, but we have to admit that there's some truth to what he's saying, right? If we find, uh, if we look at just life apart from God, which is what Solomon's doing at this point, for sake of argument, then it is a waste. No matter what he did he he hated life even the worldly enjoyments came to an end everything ends all of his possessions are passed on to someone else he's dead and forgotten and so with this kind of mindset it's a wonder that anyone would ever even crack a smile in a life like this now remember the flow of thought is important nothing that man can do between birth and death has any lasting significance that's what he said for so far there is no Value, But notice verse 24 of chapter 2 because we start to get a hint into Solomon's thesis. He's starting to show us what really is the point of life. 
He says, verse 24, There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen, that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Now, we have a, a little glimmer of hope here because he changes from words like um, like um, hated life and, and death and, and those kinds of things to words like better and satisfaction and from the hands of God, enjoyment, pleases, happiness. So this is far from the idea of it being no profit. He, he's starting to see that there, there is some significance here. And the difference is that he's looking at it from a different worldview, a different set of, of glasses by which we can see the world. We see it from God's perspective, right? It's called sound theology. It's a God-centered worldview. Look at verse 24 again. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. As also I've seen that it's from the hand of God. So he says that the best thing a man can do is to eat and drink and enjoy his work. But I thought he just said all that stuff is vanity. Why does he now recommend work and eating? How is it that he now turns to these things being satisfaction and joy? And the difference is in how he views these things. Notice at the end of the verse he says, this also is from the hand of God. He, He brings God into the picture Eating and drinking is a metaphor for life. This is part of what what we do in life. That we go from um, from birth to death. We eat and drink. This is part of how we live. It's the, the living of life. He's saying all of this comes from the hand of God. This changes everything. Before Solomon's looking at life through a lens of of a natural man, and we can understand this. Just if you just simply report the facts of your life, you you kind of look back and say, what's the point of all this? It feels like I'm in a hamster wheel. And and who can argue with that kind of pessimistic and sobering perspective on life? But but then Solomon remembered that there is a creator to his creation. And it took on a whole new perspective, a whole different perspective, not new. Solomon knew this from before, but, but he's remembering it now. The thing that once caused depression, you know, when, you remember what he said about his work? And all the products of his work, it's of no value. I hated it. Now he's looking at it and saying, all of life, the living of life, is actually now bringing me joy. And the difference is that he now looks at life from the perspective of the one who is eternal and purposeful and meaningful. And so here's the point. The only way that something temporal like our lives, right? We all live, we all die. And everything that happens in between our life and our, our birth and death. The only way that something temporal can ever have eternal significance is if an eternal God, a purposeful God, uh, shines His light into it in the sense that, that we actually see it from His perspective. That we recognize that it, is, it does have purpose. Right? If God is in control of everything, then actually everything has meaning. That's why the point of the text is all is meaningful. Meaningful, meaningful, all is meaningful when it's ordered by the hand of a sovereign God. 
Now it is that not only I as a Christian have meaning, but also every single person, every single animal, every single event that's ever happened in the world and that ever will happen has purpose. Because it is ordered by a powerful, eternal, meaningful, sovereign God. In verse 25, we're asked a rhetorical question to back up this claim. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without Him? Well, the, the answer is there, there are lots of people who eat and have enjoyment without Him, right? The, the, the wicked also... The wicked often um, take pleasure in the things of this world. But the key is that their enjoyment is... What kind of enjoyment? It's, it's a fleeting enjoyment, right? It's a passing away kind of enjoyment. It's one that doesn't last. It's vain enjoyment. It's like a vapor. It will soon be gone. But not for us. For us, our enjoyment is something that will last for eternity and actually has purpose. That, that our, when we enjoy something to the honor of God, then it actually, it, it actually ascribes glory to God that is due Him. In other words, life and enjoyment that is lived without Him is fleeting, but life with Him, life with His perspective is, is not. Look at verse 26 again. For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. So, without God, life is, as the end of the verse says, it's, it's vanity, it's striving after the wind. If God is not in control, then, then life is, is purposeless, it's meaningless. Augustine teaches that if anything is left to fortune, the world is aimlessly whirled about. But the Scriptures teach us that God is the author and providential Lord of all that happens, and He does nothing in vain, and therefore nothing is vain. So those who fail to recognize this point will fall back into this secular worldview that says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, but not for Solomon. Solomon has a different perspective on life and he wants to teach it to us and that is that there is meaning and purpose in life because God has ordained all things to come to pass. And so our responsibility is to trust Him and to enjoy life to His glory. Let me um, turn to chapter 12. We need to get to this video quick. Um, so We don't have time to go through the whole book, but again, that, hand, that uh, outline's on the back of your handout. Solomon goes through a number of other arguments talking about the things that he pursued and found that they were, they were um, of no meaning. And then he comes to his final conclusion in chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. And he says, The conclusion, when all has been heard, is this. Fear God and keep His commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. We may not figure out all the why of all this, why all this happens. We may not understand every single move that God has made. God's sovereignty is His business, but we can be confident that He is in control and that He knows what He's doing. And so our job is to fear Him, to revere Him, to recognize that He is in control. We're going to leave all of this into God's hands. And our responsibility is to, to fear Him and to obey Him, live uprightly in the world that He's created, 
And as we do that, we actually find meaning in life from God's perspective. Any uh, brief questions, comments? Jonathan? Right.
the hope that one day God will clear away all this stuff and bring true justice to us. And it's that hope that should fuel a life of honesty and integrity before God, despite the fact that I remain troubled by most of life. And that is the wisdom of the book of Ecclesiastes. few minutes to look at Song of Solomon. Um, next book in your Bible is Song of Solomon. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Song of, so- Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Um, no strict historical context that um, helps us put this in to a, a given part of Solomon's life, but um, the book is about the beauty of monogamy and premarital chastity. Uh, Solomon, obviously, we know, had 700 wives and 300 lesser wives, and uh, yeah, God used him to write this book, so what can we say, right? The Lord inspires in mysterious ways. Um, there is some argument about who the author is. Some people say it can't be Solomon since he had so many wives, but whatever the case, um, there is some wisdom in this book, and, and uh, we want to look at that briefly. The book of Solomon can be summarized, like, Song of Solomon can be summarized like this. Men and women are to fulfill their roles in glorifying God together as male and female, created in God's image through upright sexual relations in marriage. So we were made in the image of God, and uh, the marriage relationship was meant to be the place where the, the sexual expression, the sexual desires of our lives are fulfilled. And um, so this book reads like a Shakespearean romance drama where you have the betrothed young woman and her beloved man singing praises to each other about how fair and beautiful that they are. And and they end up getting married and live happily ever after, but unlike Shakespeare, there's no murder or nobody commits suicide, so it's a little different. But Anyway, a major theme of the book is how sexual relations ought to be. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. So here the young man and the young woman are not married yet. The young woman expresses her desire to remain pure until the right time, until marriage. And um, it sounds like, well, in that, then in marriage, then she can be impure. That's not the point. Um, there's there's no pu- impurity in sex within marriage. Uh, but what she's saying is, I'm going to remain chaste. I'm going to remain holy to God with my body, uh, and we ought to do the same thing, saying to the man. And these words are repeated in chapter 3, verse 1. Then we come to the wedding um, in the rest of chapters 3 through 4. And the final words of the wedding are these in chapter 5, verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh along with my balsam, my veet, my honeycomb, and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And then there's this last statement here. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply, O lovers. So it seems like the, the, the man is talking at the beginning of verse 1, and then at the end of the verse, it seems like someone else is talking. Eat, friends, drink, and imbibe deeply. O lovers, and some commentators think that this is actually the voice of God giving His approval for the sexual relationship within the marriage. That that sex within marriage is a good and right thing, 
and um, it was created by God for His glory, and His creatures ought to enjoy it within the context of how He designed it for their good and, um, and for His honor. The rest of the book then describes their life as a married couple, and in chapter 8, verse 4, we hear this refrain again, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. So the, the married woman continues to encourage the younger woman to be wise and chaste. Do not have sex before marriage. Don't make a mess of things just because you couldn't wait. Um, and uh, so from the beginning to the end, the Song of Solomon is about conquering sin in the marriage relationship and living to the glory of God as man and women, man and woman have always been intended to do. And, um, and then, so Ecclesiastes is about living life to the glory of God, recognizing that He is sovereignly in control. And then this is living life to the glory of God within the marriage relationship. Unfortunately, we don't have time for questions on that one. Just have to watch the video. They're not meant to be dissected, they're taken apart, they're meant to be read as a flowing whole. 